Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Caleb Zachrin, the assistant editor of the New Books Network, and you're listening to New Books and Law. Today I'm speaking with Professor Jeffrey Stone, Edward H. Levy Distinguished Service Professor of Law at the University of Chicago. Jeff and I are speaking about social media, freedom of speech, and the future of our democracy from Oxford University Press. He co-edited this volume with Lisey Bollinger, president of Columbia University, in Social Media, Freedom of Speech, and the Future of Democracy, a wide variety of scholars and politicians, including Hillary Clinton, Lawrence Lessig, Jack M. Balkin, Jamal Green, Senator Sheldon Whitehouse, and Senator Amy Klobuchar, examined the evolving dynamics of the First Amendment in an age of instant communication and technological transformation. This collection is an invaluable resource for understanding the perspective of the most influential legal and political minds. Jeff, thank you for joining me today on the New Books Network. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Of course. Uh, this is a, a really fascinating volume on a really important topic, one that impacts any person who spends even a little bit of time on the internet a day. And before jumping into the book, I was wondering if you could just tell me a little bit about yourself and your co-editor, Lee Bullinger. So uh, Lee and I first met back in 1972-73, when we were both law clerks at the United States Supreme Court. I was working with Justice William Brennan, and Lee was working with Chief Justice Warren Burger. And we have been uh, friends and colleagues ever since. We've both focused our research primarily on freedom of speech and freedom of the press, um, and that's given us plenty of opportunity to work together. Um, we put together a number of books like this one, um, which is a co- collections of essays by experts uh, talking about a range of different issues, uh, one called the Free Speech Century, um, another one about Pentagon Papers case, uh, then there's this one, and we have another one that will be coming out in about a year on the issue of abortion. Um, and Lee and I are writing a real book between ourselves on the question of affirmative action. So um, we both had uh, long careers um, in academia. Um, I was dean of the University of Chicago Law School and provost of the university. Um, Lee, of course, is the president of two universities, Michigan and Columbia, so he's outpaced me in that regard. Um, but uh, yeah, so both of us are basically uh, First Amendment scholars and long committed academics um, and good friends over the years. For for those who don't know or aren't familiar with the specificities of it, what, what exactly does the First Amendment say? Uh, the First Amendment says that Congress shall make no law abridging the freedom of speech or of the press. Um, that has been, over time, uh, interpreted to mean not just Congress, but the federal government. And then with the adoption of the 14th Amendment after the Civil War, uh, it's been held applicable to the states and to local governments as well. You know, uh, the First Amendment is obviously, and this is even discussed in the book, a law pertaining to the free speech, possibly the most expansive uh, as far as keep ensuring that there are, isn't regulation of speech. And 
as this book is all about, you know, social media has really changed what the First Amendment or what freedom of speech is is capable of doing, who it's capable of reaching. There's one particular essay uh, talking about how in 1965, if a crackpot wanted to spread some conspiracy theories, they would find it very difficult. They could, of course, go and try and produce some pamphlets, but you know, they, they, they wouldn't have the same reach or spread as on the internet. So how do you see and how do the contributors see the internet as changing the definition of free speech? Well, um, it's worth to step back a bit and note that when the social media and the internet came into existence, um, Congress adopted um, Section 230 of the Federal Communications Act in 1996, which basically, as a matter of statutory law, provided much greater freedom to social media companies than to newspapers or magazines or radio stations or TV stations or cable. Um, it basically said that you, the entity that operates the social media platform is not liable for what other people post on your platform. That's very different from the reality of, with a newspaper or a magazine. If the New York Times publishes a letter to the editor or a publishes a story that is libelous or that is defamatory or that is threatening, uh, they can be held liable for publishing it. But Congress decided to immunize social media from those ordinary liabilities, uh, primarily because the vision was that social media could be understood to be an enormous public park in which anyone was free and able to speak without anyone supervising what they were saying. And this was seen as an extraordinary opportunity to expand free expression. Um, so you wouldn't have an intermediary tell you, no, you can't say that, because if you say that, I could be held liable, right? Uh, the idea was to basically take out the middleman in terms of liability and basically leave it up to the person who posts something on social media, and if anybody wants to sue them, they can do it, but they can't sue Facebook or Twitter or YouTube or whatever. And the, the vision there, I think, was very aspirational. It was to create a, a robust set of freedom of expression that enabled you and me to reach far more people than we ever could have reached before. I, I want to uh, to follow up on, on Section 230 uh, in a sec, because it seems like, you know, that's so much of the heart of of the issue related to free speech. Um, but, you know, I, I, I'm wondering also with, with this book, a lot of the different contributors, if you could talk about a little, a little bit, some of the, the contributors, uh, and you know, who they are and why, how you were able to get everyone into, into, to address these issues, uh, and what some of their thoughts are on, you know, section 230, uh, in particular. So Lee and I, frankly, are both very well known, and we are able to seduce um, a broad range of extremely talented people to participate in these projects. So just for example, we have uh, legal scholars like uh, Laura Telesig, who you mentioned earlier, uh, Cass Sunstein, Erwin Chemerinsky, um, David Strauss, some of the nation's most distinctive and important First Amendment scholars, um, journalists and media experts like Emily Bazelon of Kate Starboard, Renee Diresta, um, public officials like Amy Klobuchar and Sheldon Whitehouse and Newt Minow, and then the commission 
which comes together at the end of the project. So all of these people produce essays largely independently about these topics. And then we gather together in person with a group of individuals who will review all the essays and then come together with a set of recommendations that don't necessarily speak to, for all of the contributors, but speak for what we take to be the common wisdom that comes out of this. And, and the commission consisted of people like um, Hillary Clinton, uh, Russ Feingold, um, Marty Barron, the former head of the Washington Post, um, uh, Christina Paxson, the president of Brown University, um, Russ, I said Russ Feingold, former senator, and so on. And so we worked together for um, a day in person in, at Columbia, uh, coming up with a set of recommendations based upon what all of the different authors had discussed in their different essays. Uh, as I said, not all of the authors would agree with the recommendation commission, but it did a, we did a pretty good job, I think, of um, encompassing, encompassing most of the positions that the different contributors took. Backing up for a little bit, what is the, the kind of the, the main background, the, the really important either rulings that have already been, been made about um, the First Amendment or just uh, laws like Section 230 that are, are crucial for understanding uh, what, the, what the current current state of social media and free speech is? So the first thing to be aware of is the role of the First Amendment. Um, if the government were to pass laws that were to limit, for example, hate speech on social media or insults on social media um, and other forms of speech that were politically controversial um, or seen to be um, politically uh, exaggerated or even arguably false, the First Amendment would protect that. Just as you can post something on Facebook, or you can write something for a magazine, or you can write something for a newspaper um, that has any of those characteristics to it, the First Amendment says uh, you cannot be held either civilly or criminally liable for that speech. Um, and part of the reason for that, which the Supreme Court came to over the course of a century of evolving jurisprudence, is the recognition that to have a, a free and open and um, intellectually uh, engaged society, it was necessary to let people say whatever they wanted, with a few narrow exceptions, and that it was up to others to decide for themselves whether they thought those were good or bad ideas. <clears throat> and that degree of, of uh, empowerment of individual citizens to say what they want was a, a fundamental part of where we were with the First Amendment um, before social media. So um, if you made a speech that offended people who could not be punished for it. Or if a newspaper published something that was claimed to be false, they could not be punished for it. Um, and the idea was to say the proper way of responding is by counter speech. If somebody thinks something you say is false, correct them. If somebody says something that you think is irresponsible and reckless and dangerous, counter it. But the government shouldn't be involved in censoring those things, partly because we want to have a free and open society, and partly because we don't trust the government with the power to make those determinations. Political actors are political, and they inevitably will be motivated, in part at least, 
by what seems to them to be in their political self-interest if they're allowed to punish some people who make false statements and not others. And so what the court has learned over time is the best way to proceed is to allow the government to act, but only in very narrow circumstances. So the government can punish an individual um, for express advocacy of violence that is likely to cause uh, imminent and, and grave violence to occur, a situation that almost never exists. Um, it is allowed to punish people for uh, libel if the individual was negligent in making a false statement and if it was a, if it was a public figure who was libeled, um, they couldn't be held responsible unless the public figure could prove that they'd acted in reckless disregard for the truth. Um, commercial advertising um, has a somewhat lesser degree of protection, um, but still has a very substantial degree of protection under the First Amendment. Uh, sexual expression, which was once thought to be obscene and therefore not protected by the First Amendment at all, now has almost no boundaries in terms of what can be cr criminally punished. Child pornography can be restricted, but basically the Supreme Court has limited dramatically what kinds of speech can be restricted. And mainly it's because we, A, don't trust the government to decide what to prosecute, and B, we think people should have the ability themselves to make their own judgments about what's in their best interest, what's in the society's best interest, and so on. Section 230, and more importantly, the internet, has complicated that dramatically because it has enabled, first, individuals to reach much broader audiences than they were able to before, realistically, in the world. If you wanted to give a speech or hand out leaflets, you know, you could reach only a small number of people. But given the realities of social media today, if you're provocative enough and you have enough followers that you retained over time, you could reach a lot of people and they can then send it to other people, they can send it to other people. And this is far more provocative than anything that existed in the world of free speech historically. And that was not what Congress was thinking about when they adopted Section 230. Um, they had really anticipated that social media would have this kind of dramatic impact. Um, and some of the effects it has had, for example, um, are the proliferation of falsehoods, that all sorts of false statements about individuals, about government, about government policies, about whatever, are able now to spread wildly across the internet, and they are, under existing law, protected by the First Amendment. And so you could not even punish the people who posted those things under existing First Amendment law, except in extremely narrow circumstances. But because of the realities of social media, the people who post them are able to have a far greater audience and a far broader impact than would ever have been possible before. And that can corrupt the reality of people's understandings, their values, and of the political and the democratic process. That's an entirely new dilemma. Um, the other reality of it is that substantial polarization this creates in American politics. Because one of the effects of being able to spread uh, false or dangerous or harmful speech is that what the social media companies do is to send what you post to people who have already liked what you've posted in the past. Because they want people to look at it because that'll see, enable them to see advertisements, 
and then they will post it to other people. And so what it's done is to create an enormous polarization, much greater than existed in almost all of American history. And that's partly what we see in our society today. Our, and social media definitely has had a major impact on it. What are some of the ideas that you, the commission, and then also the contributors in their essays offer for dealing with this problem? So one possibility is to change First Amendment jurisprudence and to say that in this world, the First Amendment did not give protection to as broad a range of free speech as it did in the prior world. For the most part, few of any of the contributors were eager to go down that line of reasoning because they could see the dangers of it. On the other hand, they also recognize the harm that's being inflicted on individuals in our society by the current state of reality with social media. So what the commission recommended was a middle ground. It basically recommended that two practices have to be embraced by social media companies in order to retain Section 230 protection. So the law does not compel them to do these things, but it says if this were to happen, Section 230 protection would be available to you only if you do them. And since Section 230 protection is not mandated by the First Amendment, it's just a statute, presumably it would be constitutional to do this. So one of the thing, things that they propose um, is to say that all social media uh, networks, in order to retain Section 230 immunity, uh, must adhere to a notice and takedown regime. That is, they must agree that if someone brings to their attention speech that is posted on social media that is not protected by the First Amendment and the social media company using appropriate procedures determines that that speech was not protected by the First Amendment, they must take it down. So it doesn't require them to look at everything everybody posts, billions of posts a day, to try to figure out what to take down, it does say if somebody comes to you and says this speech is not protected by the First Amendment, they then have to make an independent determination as to whether that's true. And if they conclude that it is true, they have to remove it. And if they don't do that, then they will lose Section 230 immunity, which would be devastating. Um, so that's one of the recommendations that we make. Um, the second one we make is, that, is to require that, again, in order to retain Section 230 immunity, Social media companies have to participate in a self-regulatory organization. And what this means is that a self-regulatory organization would be created that would make recommendations to Facebook and Twitter and so on about how to do their jobs more responsibly. They would not be compelled to accept their recommendations but they would be compelled to pay serious attention to them and to, and to deal with their concerns in a thoughtful manner. Um, and these would go beyond what the First Amendment requires. These would deal with issues like, for example, possibly hate speech, 
um, and invasion to privacy in certain circumstances, um, and uh, false political speech, and so on, which could not be restricted under the First Amendment. But the notion here is that this is a private entity making these judgments for itself. And if the uh, social media platforms don't accord with that, they could lose the Section 230 immunity. So the idea is basically take the leverage of Section 230 in both of these ways, which is critical for the way social media operates, and to say, if you don't do these responsible things, then you will lose Section 230 immunity. And one of the key aspects here, by the way, it's important to note, is um, the use of um, algorithms. Because as I noted earlier, social media entities do not send you randomly selected posts. That would drive you nuts, right? They send you posts that they are persuaded will interest you. Partly because they're trying to give you interesting things to read, partly because you're much more likely to use Facebook or Twitter if you're receiving things that interest you. And the consequence of that, the use of those algorithms, is to polarize and radicalize people's viewpoints. They don't hear the other side. They only hear things that reaffirm what they believe in. And so one of the things that the self-regulatory organization would do would be to evaluate those algorithms. First of all, make them public so people would understand why they're getting what they're getting. And second of all, urge the social media companies to change them. And part of the reason the social media companies use them is financial. They're not so much ideological themselves. They just want as many people as possible to go to Facebook or go to Twitter because that's how they get their advertising revenue. And the idea is to say, um, you have to make public what your motivations are and to explain to people why they are being manipulated, even if your purpose isn't to manipulate them, but the effect is clearly to do that. And the hope is that that will make some difference in the way people understand what they're receiving, and it will lead the social media companies to be a bit more responsible in the way they do this. Um, so those are, those are moderate but potentially important mechanisms to soften the negative effect that social media currently has on American society and democracy. And you know whether those would ever be put in place uh, would require federal action, um, and it's not clear that would happen. But I think most people in the federal government are aware of these problems, even if the Republicans or Democrats, and do see social media as posing a, a major challenge to the future of our nation. Um, <clears throat> so hopefully this, these recommendations will be taken seriously. And, um, and part of it is too is to, is to make much more visible the users what's going on here, that they are being manipulated, that they don't know it. Most people who keep getting right-wing or left-wing posts don't know they are being manipulated by the social media companies, not for political reasons, but to make you look more and more and more so you see their advertisements. And so one way to do this is to make people more conscious of how they're being manipulated. And hopefully they will be smart enough and thoughtful enough to recognize that's not good for me. It's not good for society. I need to have a more diverse understanding of what different people's perspectives are. Obviously, anyone can go and you know set up a domain name, create a new website, and have a new social media. You know, you, you can create 
you know, JeffNet and people can sign up and post there. Uh, you know, on the, on the cover, you feature six social medias, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Snapchat, TikTok, and Google, which, you know, has some social media aspects. Uh, you know, w- what do you make of the, the, the arguments that some of these companies are monopolies? And, you know, for example, many people have, have who've been posting on Twitter, maybe things that uh, Twitter doesn't want because they are false information, whether or not Twitter will actually get in trouble has still removed people. You know, famously, Donald Trump has been removed from Twitter. Uh, what about this aspect of social media, uh, people getting banned and not being able to, to access these sites? So um, one of the other challenges posed by social media is reminiscent of the challenge that was faced when radio and television came into existence. Uh, when radio and television came into existence, um, there were only a small number of frequencies or airwaves in any given geographical area. So in a city like Chicago or New York or California or San Francisco, there might be two or three frequencies of radio when it first came to being. And when television came into existence, there'd be room for ABC, NBC, and CBS, but that was pretty much it. And Congress recognized that to allow someone to buy those airwaves the way they could buy newspaper would create enormous risk of distortion in public understanding and public discourse because one rich person could buy up realistically all the frequencies in one city and they could completely control what individuals heard and learned from their shows and Congress decided that is not a good idea for democracy and so they adopted the Federal Communications Act, which basically created the Federal Communications Commission, which embraced the Fairness Doctrine, and which essentially provided that radio and TV stations, in order to retain their licenses, had to comply with the requirements of the Federal Communications Commission. And the most fundamental of those was the Fairness Doctrine which basically meant that if ABC um, had a political candidate on who was a Democrat, they had to allow the opposing candidate on as well. Or in a new show, if they advocated certain positions that were ideological, they had to allow someone to advocate the opposing side. And that's why people like me, who remembers a radio, a TV from the 1960s and 70s and 80s, uh, recalls it as very responsible and, and fairly well-balanced and neutral. Um, The Reagan administration got rid of the Fairness Doctrine, um, and with the explosion of different ways of communicating with cable and then social media and so on, um, the question is, you know, how does one regulate this? Uh, More recently, the Supreme Court, in in the Red Lion case in the 1970s, the Supreme Court held that the Fairness Doctrine was constitutional. It did not violate the First Amendment, that the government had a sufficiently important justification to require that radio and TV present positions on political matters that were fair and balanced. And therefore, the radio and TV stations uh, could not hold them invalid as, on the grounds that they intruded on their First Amendment rights. Several years later, though, the court held that newspapers, even in states or cities with very few newspapers, and they've obviously gone down and down, down over the years, could not be subjected to the same requirements. So the question is, is there anything analogous to that 
that could be done with respect to social media. Could we create the equivalent of a federal communications commission that would require social media networks to be fair and balanced, to present both sides of issues in a neutral and detached manner in the way that radio and TV in the past had been regulated. Now, in many ways, it's easy to see that that would be amazingly wonderful for democracy, right? There was a trustworthy government entity, non-political, non-ideological, which the FCC pretty much was, um, that was able to oversee these social media networks on the ground that they have so much power, like radio and TV did in the early years, that they have so much power to influence what Americans think and learn and know um, that they cannot be left on their own. That they need to be regulated in the same way that radio and television were regulated and the Supreme Court held it was constitutional. Um, so one of the questions is whether some regulation like the Fairness Doctrine could constitutionally be enacted. Uh, and it's not clear whether this Supreme Court would uphold that and whether the analogy between social media and radio television is in any way perfect. Um, but I can see where it would be very positive to our society if we could have a trustworthy agency that could oversee these organizations and, mo and moderate them to make sure that they were in fact being fair and balanced <clears throat> in presenting people with a range of different perspectives. Um, that would be hard to do right now. It's not clear that the Supreme Court would uphold it. It's not even clear it would be a good idea because this is much more complicated than radio or television. But in my own sense of an ideal world, it would be great if we could figure out a way to do that. I'm wondering, you know, because this, this book features so many different perspectives from, from a variety of scholars, if there was anything that you read that maybe changed your view on particular topic or issue related to this, um, or, you know, something that, that really surprised you, a perspective that you were prepared to read? Well, I know a lot about the First Amendment, but I did not know a lot about how social media operated. And so, uh, particularly those authors who are in the world of social media uh, were able to educate, certainly me, and others about the complexities of social media. And that was one of the things I learned uh, that was most eye-opening to me um, and how difficult it would be to regulate this um, in terms of having ideal aspirations for regulation, but also how important it was to regulate. Um, I did not know, for example, beforehand that these, I should have thought about it, but it didn't occur to me that Facebook and Twitter and so on were using these highly political algorithms. I mean, when I look at Facebook, I never see anything right-wing. And people who are very conservative never see anything left-wing. And I, I never noticed that it was that extreme. But some of the people who were expert in all this uh, educated me and educated others about the extent to which this is, this is true. Um, uh, the other thing we wrestled with, of course, uh, is, you know, is the idea of... Um, Notice the takedown, a realistic thing that could work. 
one concern I would have is that so many people would say, this is illegal, what, what this is saying about me, that it would overwhelm these social media companies to comply with it. And, and some of them would do it just to try to get the things taken down, even if they're not actually false, right? So if I don't like what Donald Trump is saying, I could simply say that this false information there and then require Twitter to make a determination as to whether it's factually false and so on and so forth. And, you know, th that poses incentives that are problematic. But I think these are, these are solid recommendations, but they're tentative um, because this is all so very deeply controversial. Um, beyond that, um, I think, I think mainly it was that we learned from one another. It wasn't that anyone was offering any radical ideas that shocked others. But all of us had nuances and perspectives and insights that were highly valuable. And I think changed all of our views at the margins at least. On a, you know, maybe a more philosophical note, there's a, a, a quote uh, that appears from, from Justice Brandeis. Uh, that the remedy to be applied is more speech, not enforced silence. And I, I've also heard this, this same formulation that's in this, it's in, I, I don't, I can't even count how many essays it appears in John Stuart Mill's notion of free speech, that the best way to um, to deal with bad speech or wrong speech or, or whatever you may have uh, is, is good speech or better speech. Uh, so, you know, what, what do you think about this idea? Is this, is this just idealistic notion about, you know, the marketplace of ideas, uh, you know, does this not apply in an age of social media? Well, I think what Bradbacks was dealing with was a situation where the government was prohibiting people to criticize the government, both in World War I and the years immediately after World War I. And so he was making that very powerful and, to this day, important observation about the dangers of government intervention in speech particularly in the political arena. Um, and we don't want the government saying to people, you can't criticize the war because it might lead uh, men who are eligible for the draft to refuse induction. And similar things like that. Because government will manipulate that power to stop criticism of the war. They don't really care about the effect on, on draftees. They're just trying to stop criticism of the war. Um, and I do think that is an absolutely fundamental precept about how we think about free speech from the beginning. But one of the problems that exists here is, the, in part, the use of the algorithms. The fact that you don't hear counter speech, you don't see counter speech in the way these entities are functioning. So if, if, if they were functioning the way Brandeis imagined, I would be receiving conservative and liberal Facebook hosts in a balanced way. And I could then make up my own mind. But instead, using the algorithms, what these entities do is give you only what you want to hear. And that's not what Brandeis was imagining, right? And part of the challenge is to figure out, is there a way to bring this means of communication into the Brandeis aspiration? In the same way the Fearless Doctor did with radio and television. With this project concluded, uh, is there anything? Uh, is there anything since the completion that 
you feel is just really crucial to even if it's not section you know reform of section 230 or the self-regulatory organization is there anything that you see as a, as like a really you know real in the short term feasible solution to this problem well i think the recommendations that um the commission makes are feasible um they would take a while to assuming congress would adopt them they would take a while to implement there would be constitutional issues raised about them inevitably. Um, but I do think those would make a significant difference. Um, beyond that, you know, holding these entities liable the way newspapers and magazines are for anything that anyone posts on them that would be deemed illegal would completely, if it was done seriously, would completely destroy social media. Um, and that would not be a good thing. So I think what we need, as the commission concluded, is a middle ground that enables us to preserve the value of social media, which is great, while at the same time limiting its dangerous effects. And that was the goal of the recommendations of the commission. And if they were put into place, uh, there's a reasonable chance that they would make a positive difference. Um, the other issue, again, is whether we would want to change <laughs> the current boundaries of what's protected by the First Amendment. You know, should we now say that hate speech is illegal, um, that false statements are illegal, um, and, you know, that politically manipulative statements are illegal? Because of Brandeis' perspective, those are all protected by the First Amendment. But the question is maybe we've reached a point now where we cannot really trust ourselves as individuals to know the difference between truth and falsity and between distortion and reality. And, you know, I'd rather see us reduce the risks created by social media at this point than to fundamentally change the meaning of Brandeis's conception of the First Amendment, which has dominated First Amendment jurisprudence um, in the last half century. Yeah, I, I think that the the prospect of, you know, an over regulation of, of the First Amendment is definitely concerning, I'll say. Um, but, you know, I do think that there are tons of problems posed by the current formulation of social media and that obviously people not being exposed to different opinions, people, um, you know, the you know, just the, the, the utter diffusion of false information is, is extremely harmful. So... I think that you offer a lot of good solutions, uh, a lot of interesting ideas, and hopefully, you know, there will be some some action, some movement in the next few years, because clearly, you know, what we have going right now is is tearing the country apart. So it is, and you know, I hope members of our federal government are able to step back and to recognize not just their self interest, but what is the real interest of our democracy. Um, and at the moment, it's hard to imagine that, frankly, but. What can only hope? Yeah, definitely. Well, thank you so much, Jeff. Uh, it was great talking to you. Uh, the The book is called Social Media, Freedom of Speech, and the Future of Our Democracy from Oxford University Press. Um, it, was, it was really an interesting conversation. This book is filled with really fascinating essays that I think help crystallize uh, a very complex issue. So thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I'm going to make it.
Thank <laughs> you.